0: We have a birthday in our family, 7 out of 12 months of the year, and it takes us about a week to celebrate fully each one of those. First, leading up to your birthday, you go on a special date with mom, shopping for a new birthday outfit, Uh, no birthday suit, that was just on the first birthday. Uh, Then, on your birthday, you get a special date with dad where you wear your new birthday outfit. Most recently, Adele and I went to Cracker Barrel for brunch, and then we played at Billy Bob's Wonderland. It was excellent. Uh, Also, on your birthday, you get to choose the meals, and you get whatever kind of cake you want. You also get presents from your family. And finally, you get a birthday party with your friends, more food, more cake, more presents. That that may all sound wonderful or exhausting, depending on your perspective, Uh, but birthdays are hard. Kids, have you ever thought about the fact that birthdays are hard? Here's what I mean. Two ways. First, they're hard because one day out of the year, everything is focused on you, but the other 364 days, everything isn't focused on you. So like you that one day, but then what about the rest? uh, Even harder is that one of those 364 days, or for us, six of those 364 days, everything is focused on somebody else. So what you enjoy for yourself, you have to allow someone else to enjoy for themselves. We all are born wanting everything all the time to be focused on us, Uh, But we eventually learned this is not the case. If you haven't learned that, you're welcome. Everything is not all about you all the time. Uh, But an even harder lesson than learning that not everything is about us all the time, an even harder lesson is when everything is focused on someone else, even for a short time. We'd have difficulties with that at our house. What if every day of the year was focused like this entirely on Maria? She might enjoy that, but I think among our dinner table around our house, in my my quiver as it were, uh, it would raise some objections. That's not fair being at the top of the list. Why is every day about Maria? Why isn't any of the day, why isn't it about me? But who would possibly deserve that kind of attention? not just one of my kids, yes, give me 30 seconds. What could ever qualify someone to have everyone around them live for their pleasure? What could make someone worthy of that? Do you remember Paul's prayer for the Colossians starting back in chapter 1 verse 9? If you have not already opened if it's not your Bible isn't already falling open to Colossians on Sunday mornings, please turn there Colossians chapter 1 back in verse 9. Paul is praying for the Colossians and he prays that these Christians would walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. He wanted every detail of their lives to be directed toward Christ Jesus making him happy, bringing him glory, and declaring his praise. Now, that is either absolutely appropriate or utterly ridiculous. Really, two options, okay? Everything in your life being directed to make Jesus happy, to put it in very basic terms, or to walk worthy of the Lord, to put it in Paul's terms, is either absolutely appropriate or utterly ridiculous. Now, we have gathered together on the Lord's day, a church named after him as our risen king. So we believe that walking worthy of Jesus is absolutely appropriate, even necessary, even mandatory. But but why? Why is Jesus Christ worthy of us walking worthy of him? asked that question a number of times. Why is Jesus worthy of us walking worthy of him? And that question is answered by Paul's hymn in verses 15 to 20 of Colossians chapter 1. His worthiness is proven by his exalted position as firstborn over creation and as firstborn from the dead. He is the creator of the old creation. He is the beginning of the new creation. And all of this leads to a central phrase in the middle of this hymn. You might not be able to read it on the screen, so I'll zoom in a little bit on that. Right in the middle of this, the end of verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything he might be preeminent preeminent. Christ Jesus is supreme over everything. The goal of everything is that he might be first. That is a staggering claim. The stars burn for the supremacy of Jesus. The earth spins for the supremacy of Jesus. You were born for the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus. You woke up this morning for the supremacy of Jesus. And when you die, it will be for the supremacy of Jesus. Everyone and everything, everywhere, for all time and eternity, are all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. That's why. Because Jesus is God. That's the point of our text for today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, one more phrase out of the midst of this, this hymn. You might say you're taking this slowly. I think I am taking it carefully. Chap- Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God Was pleased to dwell in Him, in Jesus of Nazareth, in the Christ, in the Son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Need to do a little bit of work, a few essential points we need to understand about the nature of God in order for the, the awe of this to settle on us properly, okay? So, first of all, hopefully this is not new, but a good refresher. There is only one God. Only one God. The creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, unchangeable in his power and perfection, in his goodness and glory, in his wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's the definition of what is God from the New City Catechism. Only one God. That's not all that we know about God, though. He has revealed that he has revealed more. He's also revealed to us in his word there are eternally three persons in the one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. A long time ago in the 6th century Church leaders met together from around various parts of Europe and Africa and, and Asia to, to gather together to hash out some of these things and try to say not what do we think God is like but what does God's word say He is like. This creed was was formed called the Athanasian Creed and it spells out some of the details of this. There is one God. This one God exists eternally. Is three persons. Let me read some aspects of this to you. You can look this up. This is just a a known historical document. They said this at one point, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. The father is God. The son is God. The father is not the son. For the father to be the son would be confounding the persons, right? So there is the father and there is the son and there is the spirit. The son is not the spirit. The father is not the Spirit. Father's the Father, Son's the Son, Spirit's the Spirit. That confounding the persons, nor dividing the substance. Not one-third of God is the Father, one-third of God is the Son, one-third of God is the Spirit. No, that would be dividing the substance. That would be uh, three one-third gods. No. So we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. They also said the Godhead of the Father The Godhead of the Son, the Godhead of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. They break it down in some ways that that can become a little bit uh, clearer for us, I hope. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. We spent some time talking about this a few weeks ago. And the Holy Spirit uncreated. I also say the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. We, we could spend all day, all week, all year, all of our lives trying to parse out and understand everything that God has revealed in his word about his nature. One God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. We would still be left marveling in finite, creaturely confusion and wonder. So if you're like, what all does that mean? What is God like? I don't understand. Good. If you're like, yeah, got that nailed down. Because God is just like, just stop you there. No, he's not. Great video that we watched on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Lutheran satire. If you haven't found that, you need to. Excellent, excellent video. There are not three gods. One God. We are left marveling in finite creaturely confusion and wonder. And here in verse 19, Paul takes all of that creaturely wonder and all of that worship about the nature of God and he, he points it all to one reality that Jesus is God, right? Take all of the marveling of the Trinity. He focuses it like a laser on the truth that Jesus is God. God in his fullness was pleased to dwell bodily in Jesus Christ. And that's both this text in verse 19 and also uh, borrowing from a later verse where in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says the same thing expands it. The wording is a little bit different. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. But it'll be months before we visit that text. So... uh, God in his fullness was pleased to dwell bodily in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, therefore Jesus rules as Lord and God and King, both over the old creation and the coming new creation. Jesus is God, and it's valuable for us to spend some time digging in on this remarkable truth. And to do so, I want to lay out first the biblical proof that Jesus is God, And second, the biblical importance that Jesus is God. This will be our outline for today. Biblical proof that Jesus is God, the biblical importance that Jesus is God. We'll start off, biblical proof that Jesus is God. You read through your Bibles, and I, I hope that you do, you recognize throughout the Old Testament that the one who would come and the one who we know did come was promised to be God. It was not just an ordinary person that would come. All the ordinary people, they all failed. But the one who would come, the promised one, would be more than just another uh, Moses who failed, or David who failed, or Solomon who failed, this one who would come is promised to be God. We can read these texts apart from just Christmas. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? God with us. Yes. Perhaps we could say, the fullness of God with us. What else does God through Isaiah promise about this child? Isaiah 9, 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. He was promised to be God. He was also announced to be God by angels at his birth. Matthew 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, called him Savior, and the fulfillment of those prophecies in Isaiah that we just talked about. This one, this one, your betrothed's betrothed son is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He will save his people from their sins. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, her son would be great, would be called the son of the most high because the child to be born will be called holy. He will be the son of God. Then in Luke 2, the angel tells the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the what? Lord. If you read your Old Testament, I hope you've caught the fact that Lord is not just a title that you just throw around. He would be Christ the Lord. He would be God's King who is God. He was promised to be God, He was announced to be God, He claimed to be God. This is a whole series <laughs> I'm trying to throw a few verses at you. In John chapter 5. Jesus heals a sick, invalid man on the Sabbath. And when confronted about this, Jesus Jesus answers his critics. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And then John tells us, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath by healing this man, but he was even calling God his own father, listen, making himself equal with God. So they said, we need to kill him. That's exactly what he meant by his statement, and they knew it, right? We could look at all of those different things, and so many uh, miscommunications and things could have been clarified. Like oh, My father's working, and I'm working. You're making yourself equal with God? Oh, no, no, no. I would never. But that's never what Jesus says. Opportunity after opportunity to clarify his meaning, if it was just like, oh, it's just a misunderstanding. But it's not a misunderstanding. He meant it. They understood it. And then he claims that he can give life as the Father gives life. He claims he will judge on behalf of the Father. He, he says he deserves the honor due to the Father. He claimed to have come down from heaven because he was sent by God. Right? It's like, well, lots of people were sent by God, right? Moses was sent by God. Moses was sent by God from uh, Egypt, from the wilderness, and sent back, right? Like, oh, David was sent from God. Yeah, David was sent from the fields. From being a shepherd, he was sent by God to shepherd his people, Israel. Where did Jesus sent from? Jesus was sent from heaven. Not true of anyone else. We see him repeatedly using the phrase, I am something to describe himself in his ministry. And this phrase is a deliberate connection to how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. Tell them, I am who I am has sent you. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I wonder if he paused like that. I am the one who came down from heaven. Like, did you hear that? I am. I wonder if Jesus used emphasis like that. I don't know. He told his disciples in John 14 that to know him was to know the Father, and to see him was to see the Father. And his clear claim to be God was the accusation used by the high priest to call for Jesus's execution. We read Matthew 26, for example, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, a nod to a prophecy in Daniel. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Again, great time for Jesus to just say, no, 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 no. It's a figure of speech. No, 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 no. I'm talking about something different than this. Are you God? Yes. Then this is blasphemy. Or, Or it was true. Jesus claimed to be God. He acted and he spoke as God. He commanded demons in his own name and they obeyed. Others commanded demons in his name and they obeyed. In the name of of God, Jesus just said, get out. And they were like, we're out. He forgave sins in Mark chapter two. One of my absolute favorite stories, right? He's the paralyzed man, isn't it? It's like, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, who could do that? How could he make that claim? And he knows their thoughts and he's kind of like, you know, just so that you know that I meant what I said and that it's true and that I have the authority to do it. He also then looks at the man, he says, take up your bed and walk. And just as he was, the paralyzed man was able to walk, so his sins were forgiven because Jesus said so. Who can forgive sins but God? Exactly and I forgive his sins. He controlled creation by calming a storm with his rebuke. I'm just, I don't, I don't want the cold and the snow anymore. Like, I, I'm not a summer person, but it's just like, okay, yeah, winter, that's enough. Any of you, would you have rebuked this, whatever you call this weather today, yesterday? Enough is enough. Want to be outside? 70 degrees. Anybody try that yesterday? Now, I wouldn't have, you just would have stayed cold and maybe gotten a little hoarse. You don't have the power to do that. Jesus, be still. The clouds, the wind, the waves, whew, amazing. Jesus spoke as God and creation obeyed. He healed diseases. He raised the dead. Jesus spoke and acted as God. God. And he was recognized as God. Simon Peter confessed in Matthew 16, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Martha confessed it in John chapter 11. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Thomas confesses in John chapter 20, verse 28, answering him, my Lord and my God. You don't say that to anybody else. I'm reminded in stories like this, this recognition, this claim and action and, and speech and recognition. I'm reminded of a couple scenarios in Acts where I, Herod was, uh, there were like seven different Herods. They were all awful. Uh, Herod is, is speaking to people that wanted to puff up his, his vanity and his ego. And they're like, oh, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And he's like, you know, I didn't want to say anything, but yeah. Yeah. It probably is. Uh, And God said, well, no, it's not. And he was eaten by worms and died. I wonder if Paul knew about that story. Him, I think it was Barnabas, wasn't it? They end up in in another city uh, and they're preaching and the people are speaking. They're like, oh, the gods have come to be with us. This is Zeus. This is Hermes. Let's offer sacrifices to them. And Paul's like, what all is, what's this excitement about? Like, what's going on? Like, yeah, we know that you are God's. He's like, no, no, we're not. Right? I think there's like sackcloth. They're tearing their clothes. They're like, absolutely not. I'm not God. Turn from this idolatry. Don't worship us. What does Jesus do? You are the son of God. You are the son of God. You are You have come down from heaven. You are my Lord and my God. What does Jesus do? I said it before, he received their worship because it was due him. Later, John 20, verse 31, John says that the point of his entire book, the things that he wrote, all of these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And after his resurrection, Peter also preached this message. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And later, Peter calls him the Holy and Righteous One, and he also calls him the author of life. He was recognized as God. See, there was a progression that took place throughout the Gospels and into Acts and throughout the epistles written to the New Testament churches. A progression, a progression. An increasing understanding. Here's how one author described this. As Christ more and more clearly explained himself, who he was, and as the disciples understood better and better which revelation of God had come to them in Christ, the name of Lord took on a richer and richer significance. Texts of the Old Testament in which God was spoken of were applied to Christ in the new, without hesitation. In Christ, God himself, the Lord, has come to his people. And the disciples, by confessing Jesus as Lord, have thus more and more clearly expressed that God himself had revealed and given himself to them in the person of Christ. Which we see is exactly what Paul's saying here in Colossians chapter 1. That is the very point that he is trying to make. All of the promises and announcements. And claims and actions and words and recognitions, they all lead up to something or they all flow out from something. There's a center point. It's as if they all hang in the balance waiting for something to happen, for one more piece to bring them all together. I mean, all sorts of people claim all sorts of things, but is it true? Is the claim true? And is there proof that the claim is true? And all of the questions about Jesus center around one central truth. There is a there's a hub in the middle. Everything else leads to it, flows from it. And the central truth is that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is this is Jesus declared to be God. That's language borrowed uh, from the Apostle Paul. The importance of this stated perfectly by him as he begins his letter to the Romans. And if you begin a letter like this, you know the letter is going to be good. And Romans is good. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Christ Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, and in doing so, God himself declared all of the promises that he'd be God, all the announcements that he would be God, all the claims that he would be God, all the the speech and actions, all of the recognition, it's all true. He is God. That's what the resurrection states. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus was even willing to die for his claim to be God. But was Jesus truly God? And the resurrection answers that question for us. Yes. When God raised Jesus from the dead, God declared that Jesus is God. Isaiah, great. Right? That's the word of God. I'm not going to denigrate Isaiah. But God said it. He said it more than once, but the resurrection is the capstone of all of it. Foundation, capstone. I know that those are different metaphors, but it's just all about Jesus. Biblical proof that Jesus is God. And that, that's me trying to narrow it down. Really, like every sermon is about this. There's a biblical proof that Jesus is God, but there's also the biblical importance that Jesus is God. There's the biblical importance that Jesus is God, recognizing that claim to be true. The resurrection of Jesus unmistakably points to his deity. Jesus rose from the dead because Jesus is God. But how important is it to follow that line of thinking? His resurrection points to his deity because he rose because he was God. Those things are linked together. How important is that? How important is it to say that Jesus is God, to hold to that claim? What is the biblical importance of this? How big of a deal is it to believe, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell? But I've got uh, I narrowed from four to two, or probably more than that. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John answer that question for us in their writing. How important is it that Jesus is God? First Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul says this, Therefore, I want you to understand that that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, understand what's happening here. This is not like, uh, I I just said Jesus is accursed, right? I read the words. It's like, oh no, am I I lost? And it's not like somebody else who's not a believer could come to this passage and no one can say except in the Holy Spirit. I just couldn't say the words because I'm not a Christian. That's not what it means, right? This is a This is a statement of, I believe this is true. No Christian can have a claim and a belief that Jesus is accursed, and no non-Christian can have a claim that Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul's saying. He Also, the Apostle John in 1 John 4, there are a number of texts where he says similar statements, uh, one in chapter 2, one in chapter 5, but here in chapter 4, he says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Pizza's delicious, right? Yes, yes. I love pizza. What is a pizza? I I looked it up. According to the Oxford Dictionary, a pizza is a dish of Italian origin consisting of a flat, round base of, baked, of dough uh, that is baked with a topping of tomato sauce and cheese, typically with added meat or vegetables. Sound accurate? Hope so. Oxford Dictionary. Write your own dictionary if you want something else. Dough, tomato sauce, and cheese. That's a pizza. I worked at Husson's Pizza at Taze Valley in high school, uh, gained 20 pounds that I'll never lose. At the end of soccer season, that was a. Uh, you stop running like six miles a day and you start eating pizza every night. Doesn't go well. But anyway, I remember an order coming through at least once for a pizza with no cheese. Well, some people are lactose intolerant. That's, that's a, out of. We don't say that anymore, right? We say dairy free now. So it's understandable. Nope, no cheese. Another time, there was an order for a pizza with no sauce. Well, you know, acidity and. Tomato products, sensitivity to that, maybe, okay. And now, you know, for gluten-free customers, Marco's Pizza offers a pizza bowl with no dough, no crust. But based on the definition of pizza being dough and tomato sauce and cheese, my question is, if you remove one of those three main ingredients, are you still eating pizza? (laughs) At some point, aren't you actually eating something other than pizza? There's a Latin phrase that is used to discuss this idea. Whew, Latin. Maybe stretch, open your eyes a little bit more. Sine non" means without which, nothing. Sine non. It means that some things are central to a thing's core, central to a thing's nature. It's to its very definition, swimming and water. What is swimming without water? Sports and competition. A violin and its strings. Take the strings away, it's no longer violin. Some things are central, but not everything. You know, maybe you like pizza with just cheese, or maybe for some reason you like pizza that has like pepperoni, sausage, mushrooms, onions, spinach, and anchovies. Not my favorite, maybe that's yours. But if you like pizza without dough and without sauce and without cheese, you don't actually like pizza. I'm not trying to be insulting. It's just, there are three core ingredients. I say if you take one out, you've changed it. You take all three out, it's just not pizza anymore. I don't know what it is. It's a different food. Sine non, without which, nothing. If you reject that Jesus is God, you are not a Christian. And I do not make that statement lightly. There are many doctrines where Christians disagree and yet are still Christians. There could be a spectrum of importance. Not everybody agrees about what's on those spectrums. We could start with with questions like, you know, who was the author of Hebrews? Maybe Paul, maybe not Paul. Those are the two camps. (laughs) Somebody asked recently, I don't remember, Jarrett, maybe, who who do you think it was? It's like, don't know. And you know what? I don't care because it's not in there. So I have an opinion, but I'm not really worried about it. Preach the whole book. Still not convinced one way or the other? Still doesn't matter. Far more important questions exist and disagreements about, between Christians. Questions about baptism. Is baptism for believers only or also for the children of believers? Is immersion the only proper mode or are sprinkling or pouring also acceptable? Those are important questions. But there are some things that are foundational Gospel truths, these things that are of first importance, sine qua non, without these truths, nothing, no gospel. And we need to be very careful not to inflate every one of our opinions or practices, every one of our interpretations, every one of our beliefs, to inflate those to the status of first importance. Here's why. When we do that, when everything is of first importance, do you know what's really of first importance? Nothing. Inflating everything to the significance of first importance dilutes the significance of things that really are of first importance. Not everything is at the core of our Christian faith, but some truths are at the core. And one of those truths is that Jesus is God. So I will repeat, I will elaborate. If you do not believe that God in his fullness dwelt bodily in Jesus of Nazareth, that reveals that you are not alive spiritually. That you do not have the Holy Spirit living in you. That you are not right before God. That you are dead and lost in your sins. And that when you die, you will be condemned by God as guilty and thrown into hell. There is no gospel to believe without the deity of Jesus. No gospel. There is no good news. There is no forgiveness. There is no hope. There is nothing but emptiness, pointlessness, misery, and damnation for all of us if Jesus is not God. But from that reality of of bleak darkness, a dazzling light shines. If you want to be forgiven... If you want to be accepted by God and adopted into his family, if you don't want to enjoy eternal life with him, then you must accept as true what the Bible clearly teaches Jesus is God. Now, you don't have to understand it fully. You don't have to fully comprehend it. I don't fully comprehend it. No one Completely understands it. It is a truth beyond comprehension. Nevertheless, I accept that truth by faith as the clear teaching of Scripture. I place all my confidence for forgiveness, all of my hope for eternal life on this foundation, this solid rock. Jesus is God. This certainly is, someone said, this certainly is the mystery of salvation. That he who was himself with God in the beginning and was God, who was in the form of God and did not think it robbery to be equal with God, who was the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person in the fullness of time became flesh, was born of a woman, humbled himself, having taken on the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus is God. I believe that to be absolutely true, and I am willing to stake my eternal soul on that truth. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? He asked that question. That's a question at the center, the heartbeat of of Mark, the heart of the Gospels. Who do you say that Jesus is? You must answer that question. Trying to avoid it is still answering it. It's just answering it foolishly. Who do you say that Jesus is? Listen to this verse from scripture again. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It doesn't get any clearer than this. It really doesn't. This assertion constitutes one of the strongest statements in the New Testament affirming the deity of Christ. Christ is not just a God or a part of the Godhead. He is fully God, quintessential deity in all its fullness. I would add to that quote, I would add to that, that Jesus did not at any point become God. That's not true. You, you can't. You can't become God. The eternal son of God became human. And his name is Jesus. It wasn't someone born as Jesus who somehow was exalted to be God. That's not, that's not the truth. The eternal son of God became human. His name is Jesus. Jesus was truly God from the moment that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he remained truly God through his life, through his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension, and to this very day and on into eternity. Jesus is God. God. There have always been those who would attempt to make less of Jesus than Paul does here. To this very day, always trying to lessen who Jesus is. He's less than truly God. Reject that. He's less than truly human. Reject that. He's less than the Creator. He's less than the only Savior. Reject those things. To make any such claim, Jesus is less than who he's clearly revealed to be in Scripture. To make any such claim is to run contrary to the eternal plan that God enacted in sending his Son into the world. The eternal plan. You listen again to how Paul communicates this glorious truth. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Pleased to dwell. The fullness of God dwelling in a human body in the person of Jesus is according to the pleasure, the delight, the perfect plan of God. It's not a side note. It's not an afterthought. This is everything. Remember? He's Lord of the old creation and he's Lord of the new creation so that in all things he might be preeminent. And all of that, is based in the reality of the deity of Jesus. You see, I didn't talk about four. I left a conjunction undefined. Can't do that. Gotta, gotta get those conjunctions. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that so that in everything he might be preeminent. Why, Paul? For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's all about Jesus. Why? Have I said it enough? Because... Jesus is God. Hence it follows that all that detract from Christ or that impair his excellence or rob him of his offices or take away a drop from his fullness attempt to overturn God's eternal counsel. Anything less than truly God, truly man, the fullness of God, being pleased to dwell bodily in Jesus of Nazareth, anything less, even a drop, is seeking to overturn the eternal plan and pleasure of God. Are you so foolish as to try to oppose God in the pleasure of his will? Jesus is truly God who became truly human for you and for your salvation. Paul wrote to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To close, I have three questions for you. Pens down. Notes down. I want everybody paying attention. These questions are for you. These questions are for me. These questions are really for everyone. And whether you've answered these questions a thousand times before or whether you've never thought through the answers to them at all, you need to answer these questions. Are you ready? Paying attention? Eyes? Think carefully about these. Answer them in your heart before God. Here they are. Do you... Confess, agree, admit, hold to the truth of the fact that Jesus is God. Do you confess that? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Okay, not. Did you, right? I don't care if you've answered the question a thousand times, a million times, for 50 years. You need to know the truth of the question now. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And do you receive God's free gift of salvation found in him? Those are the questions. Think about that. Father, we believe that it was according to your pleasure, eternally, that the fullness of God would dwell bodily in Jesus Christ. He lived and died and rose for us and for our salvation. There is forgiveness and life in His name. As you take your gospel and opened, open our eyes to it for the first time, or anew for the millionth time. May we never be moved beyond. Jesus is God who lived and died for us and rose that we might be saved. Amen.